So we are continuing our journey through this letter to the church in Corinth. And though we are separated by 2,000 years and 5,000 miles, we have more in common with this church than what you might first realize. So, for one, we're about the same size. In fact, they were probably a bit smaller than we are. We met in a house. I think we feel the same tensions as they do. They were living as Christ followers in a secular city. And that's hard. And there's tensions there. And they were experiencing those. I think we have the same sorts of questions that they were having. Questions surrounding sex. Questions surrounding race and class. And so what we are going to do is we're going to walk through this letter chapter by chapter, asking God to speak to us in Columbus as clearly as he spoke to these early Christians in Corinth. We're continuing where we left off last week in the first chapter, starting in verse 18. So let me just read the text and then we'll pray together. This is God's word for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But Gentiles, if you're wondering, simply means those who are not Jewish in the Greco-Roman culture. These were folks who were coming from pagan backgrounds. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Lord, would the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning together be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are a rock. You are our redeemer. And Lord, we know that you long to present yourself to us through your word. And so we ask that your spirit would soften our hearts. That we wouldn't just cogitate your gospel, but that we would experience your son. 
Father, we ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. So this has been uh, one of those weeks. Amen. Do you know what I mean by that? So on top of the bitter cold and the school cancellations, uh, the stomach flu hit every person in our household with a Y chromosome. Not fair, Josie. Not fair. And on top of everything else, I have, you know, what I would like to call parental Netflix shame. Do you know what I'm talking about that? <laughs> parental Netflix shame. This is when Netflix is on like all day, every day as a survival technique. And then you feel like shame over that. So I found myself on Saturday morning as I'm heading out to finish my work on this sermon, making coffee, about to throw the beans in the grinder. Praying, probably the most authentic prayer I prayed all week. Lord, I got nothing. What do I do? And as I was grinding the beans, which makes a really loud racket, uh, the Lord reassured me with this very passage that I'd been studying all week. It's as if He was saying to me, Good, good. You have nothing? Good. Good. I chose the foolish. I chose the weak, the low, the despised, so that you, Joe Hack, would not boast. If there's any boasting that's going to happen on Sunday, Joe, it'll be in the Lord. Not in your achievement. And what this told me in my soul, and what I think it says about a lot of us, is that we view weakness as a liability. Amen? We view weakness as a liability. And why is this? Well, it's because we live in an achievement culture. And I don't care what we say to the contrary. Our actions create a force, a current, that is just almost impossible to break out of. Now, achievement by itself is a good thing. But when it becomes everything, especially when it becomes the primary way that we relate to God and others, achievement, it becomes destructive. I saw this article recently in The Atlantic, why kids care more about achievement than helping others. And it says in this article, with, while ni- listen, this is amazing, while 96% of parents say they want to raise ethical, caring children and cite the development of moral character as a, quote, very important, if not essential, 80% of youth, okay, so now we're asking the kids, 80% of youth Surveyed reported their parents are, quote, more concerned about achievement or happiness than caring for others. Approximately the same percentage reported that their teachers prioritize student achievement over caring. Surveyed students were three times as likely to agree as disagree with the statement, quote, my parents are prouder if I get good grades in my class than if I'm a caring community member in class and school. We live in an achievement culture. That's all this says. 
So that we can say we're in this, you know, I'm in the sacrifice. I'm in the self-sacrifice. I think that's really cool and lovely. Uh, we can say I'm into caring others. I, I'm really into the common good. But with our actions and our nonverbals and in the depths of our heart, I think we're way more into achievement than we realize. Way more into success than we realize. Way more into winning than we realize. Now, this is not new. This isn't like a uniquely American thing, although it is American. It's not uniquely American. This has been true since the third chapter of Genesis. After the fall of humanity into sin and all the way down shot through history. This is the default setting of humanity. Achievement. Climb. Win. And we know that the ancient city of Corinth, this Roman colony in Greece, was an achievement culture to its very core. If you were with us in the first sermon, you know that Corinth was where you went to make it. It was like L.A. and New York City combined. And we also know this not just through historical observation. We know it through what Paul says in this letter to us this morning. Paul is obviously very concerned about two things, wisdom and power. It comes up over and over and over and over and over again. And he's contrasting some kind of worldly wisdom and worldly power with God's wisdom and God's power. He's making this distinction. And so it's very clear that Paul has this burden to speak into an achievement culture. I mean, Corinth, we can tell from what Paul says and what we just heard, valued looking wise. It shows up 12 times wisdom in our passage. All you have to do is scan the text. Starting in verse 20, where's the one who's wise? 21, in the wisdom of God. The world did not know God through wisdom. The Greeks seek wisdom, verse 22. And on and on it goes. I mean, in Corinth, they had these people called sophists who would walk around and give lectures. I mean, the best I could do is compare it to like TED Talks. There's like these ancient Greco-Roman TED Talks that would happen. And we all know what a TED Talk is, right? A TED Talk are these incredible people with incredible knowledge giving an incredibly polished presentation. I mean, I'm honest, I've I've checked out books saying how to talk like a TED speaker. Yeah, because they're incredible. They're so amazing. And that's what was going on in Corinth. These people would show up and just orate and they'd be amazing. And they valued that in Corinth. They also valued power, like sheer raw power. Power as in power over, not power for Power over. So that in verse 22, if you look down, verse 24, verse 26, verse 27, we see this word power. Remember, Corinth was an impressive city for impressive people. Just like Columbus, it was an impressive city for impressive people. In fact, that could be their motto, right? An impressive city for impressive people, right? 
If they had Instagram, it'd be where all the influencers live. Do you know what an Instagram influencer is? I just learned this. They're people who are influential on Instagram. Go figure. They have like a bajillion followers. That's where they would live. They live in Corinth. That's where it's happening. They'd be doing selfies next to the shore. Business starters would be in Corinth. People had passion. People had drive. The social climbers were in Corinth. Plutarch, an ancient writer, he said, the people who live in Corinth are like ivy. They just find something like stable and secure and climb up it. And that's many of us, right? We live here in Columbus because all the institutions are here. The stable, secure institutions. And what are we doing? We're climbing it. That's what we do. We're an achievement culture just like Corinth. And so understandably, in Corinth, uh, this marriage of wisdom and power informed their religion and their religious outlook. Religion was all about not rescue from sin, but rescue from sort of the cultural markers of weakness and folly. Be it sickness or bad harvest or trouble with childbirth. And so it all makes sense. In an achievement culture, God serves our ambitions. In an achievement culture, God submits to our goals. In an achievement culture, God endorses our plans. In an achievement culture, God contributes to our Kickstarter. But in walks this sort of beat up <laughs> itinerant named Paulos. And he's probably got scars on his face and his pulled out hair, maybe. Not dressed for a TED talk. Let's put it that way. Who we see in verse 17, if you look down, came in to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And then he says in the next verse 18 that Corinth, the church in Corinth, rather, if it is to remain a church, must stay centered around this word of the cross or this message of the cross. And this was, in other words, a deep confrontation to to an achievement culture like Corinth. The cross confronts three things. The cross confronts the wisdom of the world. So Paul says it's folly by world standards in verse 18. The wisdom of the world. The cross is folly. And then in verse 23 he says again that the cross is folly to the Gentiles. It's folly. In an achievement culture, a cross is foolish. It's not impressive. It's not wise. In fact, I really appreciate what one historian writes. Death on a cross was regarded in Roman society and Corinth was a Roman city as brutal, disgusting, and abhorrent. It was reserved for convicted slaves and convicted terrorists and could never be imposed upon a Roman citizen or more respectable criminal. 
It was also it was so offensive to good taste that crucifixion was never mentioned in polite society except through the use of euphemisms. In fact, one of the earliest visual depictions of the cross that we know is on a wall. And it's a picture of a, it's like a stick drawing of a slave worshiping Jesus at the cross. Only thing is, Jesus is portrayed as a donkey. It's a slur. It's a slam. It tells us everything about how Greco-Roman culture viewed the cross and Jesus who died on the cross. This is a religion for slaves. And who died on that cross? A donkey. Why? Because in an achievement culture, the cross is ridiculous. It's losing. It's ugly. It's submitting. It's serving. It's not for winners. The cross confronts the wisdom of the world. The cross also confronts the power of the world. Paul says in verse 21 that the Jewish community demands powerful signs, but the cross was a tripping stone to them. Why? Well, because every Jewish man and woman expected the Messiah to kill Rome, not the other way around. The Messiah in their imagination was coming to destroy the Roman Empire. And instead, the Messiah comes and he is splayed out on the Roman propaganda intimidation device, the cross. I mean, I don't know what you think of when you think of the cross. But when I went to Jerusalem, I learned something that changed forever the way I view the cross. I learned that the Roman Empire put the crosses at eye level. Not sort of away on the hills so that you couldn't barely see it, but a silhouette with the sun coming back behind it. I mean, we somehow managed to make a crucifix look lovely. It's not. It's brutal. And it's at eye level so that the one crucified could be seen at eye level to all who crossed by it. And did you know the Roman Empire put these crosses at crossroads? Heavy, heavy traffic crossroads. Why do you think they did that? Think about it. They were an empire. And they are saying to every citizen in this empire, don't you dare. Don't you dare. Don't you dare. So every man, woman, and child would walk by. Crucified criminals. And if your expectation was that your Messiah was going to destroy the Roman Empire and suddenly your Messiah is on a cross, that's a stumbling stone, is it not? That is, that is a little bit like a faith crisis, I'd say. The cross confronts the power of the world. The cross also confronts the self 
reliance of the world. Paul says relying on our achievements gets us nothing. I'll say that again. Paul is driving at the point here that relying upon self-achievement gets us absolutely nothing. There's really not much nuance in the Apostles' words here this morning. So if we're relying on our own achievements and we're in verse 18, if you follow along, perishing. If we're relying on our own achievements, then we are, according to verse 19, being destroyed. If we're relying upon our own achievements, we are, according to the Old Testament scripture voted or quoted in verse 19, we're being thwarted. In verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know the God, did not know God through wisdom. We don't have knowledge of God. In verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. If we're relying on our self-reliance and our wisdom, we're being shamed. In verse 28, we're being brought to nothing. And so if you are wondering this morning why we say in the church the cross is an offense, I think we have our answer, do we not? It's an offense because it's saying that all of your self-achievements brings you nothing. That is inherently offensive. In fact, if you've not been offended by that message, you've probably not heard the message of the cross in its fullness. Friends, I'll put it this way. If you are a Christian, the Lord rescue you in a culturally embarrassing and weak way. The cross. Culturally embarrassing. Culturally weak. And the culture's wrong. And this cross confronts your and my achievement attitude. In fact, the most confrontational words in the passage that we just heard read aloud this morning, I believe are in verse 30. In verse 30, he writes, He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. Or other translations put it, Because of Him. Because of Him, you have everything. Not because of you. It's because of Him. And in fact, in these verses 26 through 28, we see God chose, not once, not twice, but three times. God chose, God chose, God chose. Because of Him, He caps it off in verse 30. But once we feel that sting a sort of ego deflation that happens. The offense of the cross, it explodes with blessings. In fact, I would say the gospel is first bad news before it becomes good news. In fact, it must first be bad news for it to be good news. It must sort of offend your ego before it's balm to your ego. How does it do that? It changes us, as one person put it, from inherent achievers 
to glad receivers. We're not fighting the receiving impulse. You know how it's hard to take a gift sometimes? It's not hard to do that. And once you're there, once you become a receiver, you're on the path to the abundant life that Jesus describes. You're owning your weakness. You're owning your failures. You're owning your hunger. You're owning your thirst. And you're simply receiving all that God gives you. That's a whole different, categorically different way of approaching God and others. We go from achieving to receiving. And this is Paul's passion in this text. It's his absolute passion. He's saying, there is nothing for you in your own achievements, but there is everything for you in receiving Jesus. Which is why he preaches the cross. What do receivers get? I'm just going to walk through this briefly. Receivers get, according to Paul, the power of Jesus. Receivers get the power of Jesus. So instead of trying to achieve power, we're trying to measure up to the worldly status of power. Verse 18 assures us that when we embrace the cross through weakness and inability, we actually get the power of God where true power resides. Who is Christ? Verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And this power saves us. Verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the word of the cross. I'm not ashamed of the good news of Jesus. Because it is the power of God for salvation. The weak cross is actually stronger than all worldly power because Jesus alone can save and change your broken, messed up life. Jesus alone can do that. You've tried everything to change. Only the cross can change you. You've tried everything to hide your sin and the things you've done that you know are are wrong. You've tried to hide it. You've tried to sort of justify it. Only the cross can take care of that stuff so that you don't have to play that game anymore. You've remade your identity about a hundred times to feel secure and stable. It's exhausting. Don't try anymore. Only the cross can give you the stability you want. That is where the power is. Do you see? There's no power in trying to do it on your own. Receivers get that. Receivers also... Strangely, get true wisdom, the wisdom of Jesus. Instead of trying to achieve wisdom and to look wise, God gives his wisdom who is Christ. Again, verse 24. The foolish cross is wiser than any human philosophy. That's scandalous. And this is why Paul purposefully in Corinth didn't preach with human eloquence. He could. He certainly could. He just decided not to. Why? Because he knew this was a struggle in Corinth. And he didn't want to strip the cross of its power. Receivers get the wisdom of Jesus. And receivers finally get the status of Jesus. This is really amazing. Instead of trying to get to know God on our own wisdom and on our own achieving, Paul says in verse 30 that receivers get the status of God's Son. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. Because of God, we are made in to be united to Jesus. 
who God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so we are in Christ. We suddenly get the the status of the Messiah. That's mind-blowing. We are given the status of the Messiah because we are in Christ. Because we are brought in to Christ. We have His status. Has that sunk in yet? Because we're in Christ, we get His status. Does that not destroy achievement at its root? Everything that you would try to get on your own, you have already in Christ. That's what Paul is saying. You have what? You have righteousness. That's a courtroom metaphor. You are right with God. You've been declared righteous, not because of your righteous activities. Not because you've sort of stayed away from these sins and done these good things. You are declared righteous because Messiah is righteous and you're in Him. He uses a religious metaphor next, sanctification, which basically means you belong to Him. You belong to Him. God God belongs to you. You belong to Him. You might be trying your whole life to try to belong to God, to get near to God. You might be seeking God. You might be searching for God. You might be reading books that are really hard to understand, but you're kind of like, I think I get God now. Paul is saying, no, you have God. You're in union with Jesus, and you are sanctified. You're holy. You're brought near. And then he switches to a slavery metaphor. He says, Jesus is your redemption. You've been rescued or redeemed from slavery. Because you're in Christ, you're no longer enslaved. And I love this metaphor because I think that is how most of us experience sin today. It's been said that cultures before us really understood sin and more of the courtroom metaphor that Paul uses. I really feel like I've offended God and I need something to sort of bring me in right standing with God. And that is all true. We've all offended God with our sin. But it's been pointed out that what we feel most, perhaps in our cultural moment, is the slavery of sin. Man, we are just like we do things and we wish we did it. We're, we're, we're trying things and we're doing things that I wish I could stop. I'm tired of like pretending and I can't stop. We are enslaved to ourselves. And Paul is saying Jesus is your redemption from that. He's rescued you from that. You can stop. You have his status right now. You have it right now. Christians, you have the status of Jesus right now. You are righteous in Christ. You are holy in Christ. You are redeemed in Christ. That's who you are. My sister, who's older, five years older, she went through high school before me. Um, and middle school, I guess all the grades, if you, do the, if you do the math. Yeah, that's right, all the grades. But high school seemed uh, a little bit more important because when you enter into high school, you're really nervous about how your teachers are going to think about you, right? Well, my sister went ahead of me. And how many people had older siblings that went ahead of you? Now, so for better or worse, you got their reputation. Amen? Amen? I mean, let's just, if you're a teacher out there, I'm sorry, but it's probably very hard to not import the status of the older brother or sister on the younger brother or sister. 
That's exactly what happened to me, and it was like 80% good. I hope my sister's not listening to this podcast. 80% good. Some of you, it's like 0% good. Others, maybe 100% good. You got, you got away with stuff because of your older brother or sister. Point is, we have our older brother, Jesus, who went ahead of us, and we have his status. We have it. He represents us. And this is the amazing cross. You try to achieve it, you try to get it, and you get nothing, but you give up the race and receive it, and you get everything. You get it all in Jesus. So let me just ask you a few questions to close out. Are you exhausted trying to change yourself? Are you? Has self-invention just become exhausting? Are you trying to live before the eyes of others so much that you just almost burn out, perhaps burn out? I know uh, one human being, and he goes to our church, and he plays bass for us, who can bend horseshoes without any heat. He can just kind of go like this. And bend it. All other mortals cannot. So he breaks my metaphor, and I'm mad at him about this, but here's what I'm going to say. Trying to change in your own power is like trying to bend the horseshoe. Okay, you're going to break something, it's not going to be the horseshoe. But when you apply heat, which is how normal people bend horseshoes. It it, it molds in its shapes. And that's how the cross works. The cross molds and shapes your heart. And when you try to change your heart, it's like bending a horseshoe cold. So I'm just asking you, are you exhausted trying to change? Look at the freedom you have in this chapter. The true freedom of receiving. Receiving what Christ has done. I think you'll be surprised that when you receive, instead of trying to, trying to achieve what Christ has already done, you will experience surprising change. If you are a receiver, then you have no grounds for boasting in your achievements. So let me just ask you this question. Are you tired of bragging and justifying yourself before others? Do you have like a deep, deep-seated impulse like I do to constantly justify my actions and behaviors? To say, but, all the time. But at least I didn't. Or, yeah, but did you see? Or, yeah, but did you notice? Are you tired of that? Are you try- tired of, in a manipulative, sort of passive-aggressive ways, showing your colleagues and your family members how awesome you are? <laughs> Drop it. And rest and your status given to you by Jesus. I love this quote from N.T. Wright. He writes this, exploring what it means to be in the Messiah so that what is true of him is true of you is the Christian's basic strength and delight.
And then finally, if we will if we will be as a church a receiving culture, then we have no grounds for division or factions or cliques. And really, that's ultimately what Paul's after here. Do you remember last week, Paul is talking about divisions that are happening in the church? Well, why is it that he immediately goes to the, to the cross? It's because the cross is the great leveler. Radical grace is the great leveler. Look, if we have all of our status by being in Christ, then there is no religious justification whatsoever for any kind of stratification or any kind of clicking in the church. That's Paul's radical message. He's, he's applying grace to a, to, a, to a church problem. He's saying to, to, to this church, it's dividing. I follow Paulus. I follow Cephas. He's saying, how could you do such a thing when you are all in the Messiah? And you have everything you need in Him. There are no podiums. Just desperate, needy, but saved sinners in the church. Lord, we... ask that this message of the cross would penetrate deeply into our hearts so that we could, as Paul, the apostle, who knew what it is to get knocked down, to have his ego humbled, could boast in the Lord and only in the Lord. Would our confidence be in Jesus? Would our rest be in Jesus? Would the thing we brag about be Jesus? And it's in his name we pray.